When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. From the Gospel according to St. John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Alleluia! Christ is risen! Since the 6th century, at least, it has been the tradition of the church, both east and west, to read this text which we read this morning from the Gospel of John on the second Sunday of Easter. Two years ago, and Seth, you were there, you remember this, we were at this church in northern Iraq in, in, uh, in Duhok, and what did they read on the second Sunday of Easter? This Gospel. You could... It was in Aramaic. The whole liturgy was in Aramaic. These were uh, Church of the East types, and... and uh, this was what they read. We could, we could make nothing else out except for that it was about this. Um, on this Sunday, we are taken to that first Easter Sunday evening. In John's account, Mary Magdalene has gone to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark. What she sees is not the risen Jesus, but simply this, that the stone has been taken away. And having seen this, she runs to Peter and the other disciples and she says simply this, they have taken away, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. When push comes to shove, she looks to the Almighty they. <laughs> you know, they did this, they did that, they're going to do this. They have taken Him out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. The two disciples, Peter and John, who's called the other disciple, we presume that he's John, run to the tomb, and John goes out of his way to make sure that he says, I won the race twice. But they do not see the risen Jesus. They see burial cloths, the face cloth, neatly folded, the place where he had laid. And when they return home, Mary Magdalene is standing at the tomb, Peter and John having gone away, and she stands there weeping. And she looks inside the tomb and she sees two angels sitting where the Lord's body had been. It is then that you have this wonderful scene. Mary turns around and sees Jesus, but supposes that He's the gardener. And it is only when He calls her by name that she recognizes Him. He says, Mary. She says, Rabboni. And then that evening, Jesus appears to the disciples behind locked doors. What is strange about the disciples' experience of the resurrection is that they do not say that they follow Jesus around or that He stays with them in the evenings or that He is with them always. Rather that the Lord appears and disappears and reappears to them. He comes to them. Mary doesn't take Jesus by the hand and lead Him to the disciples. You must come with Me. You must go see them. And He says, do not embrace Me now. But she goes to them and says, I have seen the Lord. And this has led some to doubt the reality of the bodily resurrection, this appearing and disappearing. How can He be in a body when He appears and disappears? But hear what Benedict XVI has to say about this. It's from his wonderful little work on the Eucharist. His presence is entirely physical. That He is not bound by the physical laws of space and time. You and I are bound in the physical laws of space and time. We can only be where we are when we're there. For instance, where are we right now? Well, I think we're at 1008 Jefferson in Waco, Texas. At least so I'm told. 
And I believe it's also 11.13 in the morning on Sunday, April 11th, 2021. But to inhabit a resurrected body, indeed to be resurrected, means that as Paul says of the Lord Jesus, death no longer has dominion. Paul would even say that this primary characteristic of the risen body of Jesus is that it is spiritual. It is sown a mortal one and raised a spiritual one. And by that, he does not mean that it is non-bodily or sort of like some sort of floating ether, but a physicality in accord with or after the manner of spirits. Jesus can disappear and reappear. He can cover vast distances. He can make Himself known in the breaking of bread. He can appear behind locked doors. In the iconography of the East, and I believe this was on one of the earlier slides, the risen Lord is sometimes depicted with angelic wings. And you might say, He didn't become an angel. By the way, this stuff drives me nuts. Like, you know, He's dead, now He's an angel, and blah, blah, blah. Like, no, you can, never be what you, you can never be that which you are not by nature. He doesn't become a different... He doesn't take on a different nature. He doesn't become an angel. The point of the icon is that he has been raised after the manner of a spirit, which is what an angel is. He has been raised in a spiritual body. What is detailed in the Gospel is not how the risen Jesus comes back to the disciples to live with them and eat with them and sleep next to them, but His appearances. These theophanies, very much like the manifestations of God in the Old Testament, to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, but here made manifest in the body and in the Spirit. Meaning that the resurrection is not merely bodily any more than it is merely spiritual. Both come into view, and in that way, a full picture of perfected human life is made manifest. And this is what we see on this Sunday. The disciples have locked the doors. No one who is merely a body can break behind locked doors. Yes, Mary Magdalene had said that she had seen the Lord, but the disciples were afraid. We should not dismiss this fear as irrational. The disciples had been first guilty of deep betrayal. Consider Peter. Consider the others. Only John had followed to the cross. But John tells us that this was not the cause of their fear. And I think we should believe him. Rather, it was the fear of the Jews. Not the Romans, but the Jews. But simply, they were afraid of being crucified for being Jesus' disciples. For being accused of some sort of plot to unearth Him. They were afraid, perhaps, that if word of this empty tomb got around, the easy solution would be to round up and kill all those who had seen it. And you can certainly see how the temple priesthood, almost entirely Sadducees who denied the resurrection of the dead, would have done this. They would have said, that is what we aim to do. But the point is not why they were afraid. The point is that they were afraid. And friends, how often is this the case for us? We are easily given over to fear. Sometimes it is reasonable fear. Sometimes it is utterly irrational, but utterly real. But fear leads us to be isolated, to seek seek shelter and safety. I cannot tell you today what is reasonable precaution, 
What is faithful precaution? I mean, how many times you must do X, Y, Z, take your vitamins, whatever it is, to live safely in this world? I can't tell you what that is. What I can tell you is that in the midst of fearful disciples, Jesus shows forth His glory. Even when the doors are locked. Even when they have collapsed in on themselves. What the Lord gives to those disciples is not, however, bravery or courage, but peace. In the liturgy this past year, the peace has had to take a different form. These little... Yes, yes, how are you? Okay, fine. Um, you know, Father Jonathan and I were talking about this several weeks ago, and we just said, you know, if anything sticks after COVID, it'll be bowing more at each other. That would be a, that'd be a win. But look, it's important to note that liturgically, anyway, the peace was always at the very point of the resurrection in the Eucharistic celebration. It was a way to say that it is in the body of Jesus Christ that true peace is given. Here the disciples, in seeing the risen body of Jesus, are glad. That's all it says. They're glad. No longer afraid. You and I are given the gift of a peaceful gladness in the midst of the living body of the church and through the manifestation of that risen body, the Eucharist. It is a peace which casts out fear. What do we see here? First, we see that our fears almost always revolve around death, but not always in the physical sense. Sometimes the things we fear, we fear because we believe that they will cause some other kind of death than a physical one. The death of a life we love. The death of being respected. The death of our careers. The death of friendships. The death of others. The death of our identities. The death of our own comfort. The resurrection shows us something massive, which is that death is not the end. Whatever it is, it is not final. It shows us that there is a greater life beyond this mortal one, that in, life, that in death, as the funeral liturgy says, life is changed, not ended. The disciples seem to understand this immediately, that their fears have been banished in the risen Christ, and therefore they are glad. And then Jesus shows them His hands and His side. As I said on Good Friday, this wound in His side is an important one. It was a wound given after He was already dead. It was the wound out of which blood and water flowed. John makes note of these things to show that Jesus through His death and resurrection has given a new vision for human life. A new vision for what it means to be made in the image of God. John goes back to this multiple times, not only here, but in uh, 1 John chapter 5 when he speaks of the blood and the water and the Spirit giving testimony. This was clearly a, a central point in John's preaching of the risen Christ. This new image of God to be no longer born just to die, but to be made for supernatural life in a risen body. A life not sustained by food, but a life sustained by the life of Jesus Christ. His body, His blood, the cleansing waters which spring forth. In this life, the Christian begins this supernatural life in the waters of baptism and is sustained in this supernatural life by the nourishment of the Eucharist. This side wound is the wound from which 
abundant life is gained. And I should note, as I did on Good Friday, that Augustine once gave a definition of the sacraments as those graces which flow out of the side of Christ. But I need to be clear. In the heavenly life, sacraments will cease. Why? Because we will no longer need signs of grace, but will live in it. The grace of being joined in the flesh to the church's bridegroom. The next thing we see is Jesus saying that phrase again, peace be with you. Having called them out of fear through His peace, He calls them to boldness. Also through the peace of His risen body. For the Christian, we should always understand that when God is giving us peace in the midst of our fears, it is not merely so that we would be fearless, but so that we would be given a new boldness. These disciples turned the world upside down, and not because they were unafraid to die. Not because they were unafraid to die, but because they had a kind of they had a peace, a peace which comes from being joined to Jesus, the peace of hope, the peace of faith, the peace of love. Please hear me, this didn't make them reckless. Recklessness and boldness are not the same thing. They were bold in this world because they believed that they had been given real peace through the Gospel. Listen to what Jesus says to them. As the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. This is a powerful sentence. Jesus used the word here, kathos, which is the very word where we get the word Catholic. It means just as, or in the same manner as, or according to the same way. How is it that Jesus is sent by the Father? Well, let me just say a bit about that. Jesus is sent in the body. His ministry is incarnate. And He is sent in His risen body in a body. The same incarnate body. His ministry is in the flesh. He is sent in power. Namely, the power of the Holy Spirit. He is sent not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He is sent to serve, not to be served. He is sent to forgive sin. He is sent to die. And Jesus says, as the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. You and I are called to an incarnate ministry. We are called to a powerful ministry. We are sent not to condemn the world, but that the world might even say through us if we were bold, might be saved. We are sent to serve. We are sent to forgive sin. And yes, we are sent also to die. And that being the case, Jesus breathes on them. We need to pause here for a bit and think about what that breathing might have looked like. I mean, when I was growing up, I always thought it was a nice Episcopalian kind of breathing, like, now I'm much more earthy, and I think he was probably doing something like... <laughs> but we need to think about this for a moment. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is Jesus breathing into them? The Creed tells us that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, to be worshipped with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is God. Having showed the disciples the source of this new supernatural life from His hands and His side, this blood and this water, to show that they will be joined to His death and resurrection and holy baptism, 
and joined continually to his body in the Eucharist, he shows them that this new life is nothing less than the divine life. Life from the river of life and the giver of life, God the Holy Spirit. Indeed, we can and should say that the Christian life is the life of the Trinity. Many Christians through the centuries have asked, were the apostles baptized? And I've always taken the side of no. Why? Well, because they received the Holy Spirit from Jesus Himself. They were baptized into Jesus in this way. And this being the case for the apostles, they are sent in the same manner as Jesus Himself by the same power and endowed with the very same triune life. They are given the power to forgive sins. Let me first say this, and I, you know, this will shock some of you, but some of you like uh, Rock Rib Baptists will be glad I say this. I know you're still out there. All Christians, all Christians have the authority to forgive sins. When you forgive a brother or a sister, they are forgiven and truly the authority to forgive sins given to the apostles has been understood to come from this sharing in the divine life which every Christian has. Cyril of Alexandria put it this way, that while it is clear that the Holy it is the Holy Spirit who forgives sins according to His will, it is through human instrumentality that it is done. Why? Because the disciples now live not by human power, but as partakers of the divine life. As recipients of His grace. They now have power which is understood to be God's alone because they belong to God. Thus, when they call men and women to baptism, they do so fully ready to remit their sins. And when they rebuke and grant pardon, they do so as bearers of the Holy Spirit and therefore able to do the things which befit God alone. This is the great power which is exercised in the sacrament of confession, brothers and sisters. It is a power which derives from the awesome power of the Holy Spirit in apostolic ministry. It is the power which is given not only to the apostles, but to their successors, the bishops, and then to priests like me. And I want to encourage you today, if you have made use of confession in the past, stick to it. If you've never done so, there is no time like the present. Finally, and not to leave him out on this Doubting Thomas Sunday, a word about Thomas. Poor Doubting Thomas. Absent on the first Easter, he shows up late to the party. He won't be satisfied by seeing. He won't be satisfied by the testimony of his brothers. He wants to see. He has to see. He needs to see. And for this, we should not slight him. Not in the least. The disciples are gathered again behind locked doors and Jesus appears the same way as before, saying, peace be with you. But then He turns to Thomas and He says to him, put your finger here and see My hands and put out your hand and place it in My side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. We can be given very easily to think that Thomas is here witnessing a rational explanation for everything in the universe. I think not. What he is doing is he is touching the word of life. Just as John says, we touched, we saw, we heard. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Jesus grants Thomas the very thing he was asking for. And this is not something to be missed. What are you asking of the Lord at this very moment? To know Him? To trust Him? To believe more deeply? The Lord desires to grant this request and more. But look what happens. I want you to see this. Thomas just doesn't, he doesn't just go from doubt to belief. That's, that's the old cliche story. And it doesn't actually hold up. He doesn't go from doubt to belief. There's so much more going on. Thomas doesn't say something like this I didn't believe that you'd risen from the dead until I saw that you'd risen from the dead. So I believe now. It's not what he says. What is it that he says? He says, My Lord and my God, beholding the risen body of Jesus, sticking his finger in the risen body of Jesus, Thomas is moved not to belief alone, not to faith alone, but to confession. Confession of a different sort. Confession that springs forth from being born anew through the resurrection of the dead. Confession that springs forth from being joined to the living God. Confession that springs forth from union with Jesus. Today we have gathered to worship the risen Lord. We have gathered to worship Him both in word and in sacrament. We have gathered to receive His mercies, to receive His grace, to receive His supernatural life, to receive even His risen life, to be made one body with Him. We have come here to a marriage feast. Let us worship just as Thomas did. Saying, my Lord and my God. Hallelujah, Christ is risen.